The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Happy birthday to us. We're 100 today. Asta and me. Tom, can you believe it? It's 100, mate. I can't believe it, Nigel. I can't believe it. And do you know why I can't believe it? Why? Because if you asked me to sit down and write the names of the people that we podcasted, I think there's something to do with my age, but I would, you know, it, it's uh, maybe it's something to do with the fact that in America people have got funny spellings of their name, like Anna Marie, a producer who's listening at the moment, who's not, no one spells Anna Marie like that. It's got these two N's and it's a, and a hyphen. It's not, Clearly it's not you even. You can see what's happened. In a hundred episodes, we've become completely senile. Um, <laughs> we're just hoping that we get a letter from the Queen. Everybody, wish us or, a 100th birthday, please. Let's get the Queen on the podcast. Come on, it can't be that difficult. She likes it. I know she's a, she likes a, a martini. Well, the Queen Mother did. You know the story of the Queen Mother? What? Actually, yeah, it's probably not great these days to tell it. But anyway, I'll tell it and you can always edit it out. Um, she, quite a lot of her, the Queen Mother's staff were, um, were gay. And quite a lot of them were male. And anyway, she was one day she was sitting in a in, in a, uh, a drawing room and didn't have her drink was not forthcoming. And uh, she liked I think she liked a martini, um, would say gin based cocktail. Anyway, she got fed up with waiting for the for pressing the bell or whatever, and nothing happened. So she went out of the room, leant over the balcony, and shouted and heard these two guys downstairs having a having an argument, and allegedly. She shouted down the stairs, we need two old queens down there have stopped arguing. There's an old queen up here who wants her drink. And apparently that's actually a true story. Some, yeah. But anyway, I, mean, I, I don't know. So I, I have no idea these days what, what one can say and what one can't. But anyway, um, let's, get the queen. let's get the queen on. Come on, Anna Marie. Get the queen on. Get on it. <laughs> Tommy boy, what are you drinking, mate? Well, I've once again gone to my first aid box. Oh my God. And, this, yeah, by the way, this I, podcast is not brought to you by first aid box drinks, by the way. It's like a urine sample bottle. Um, I'm drinking a transparent pina colada. Pina colada. Um, do you want me to tell you what's in it? You should know by now. Three-year-old rum. Coconut rum, no less. Dr. Lucent's Summer Riesling Edition Vermouth. That sounds very pretentious and pineapple sugar, which I've never heard of. Um, it's a, it's a clear stirred down riff on a pina colada, sweet and dry and punchy, like me. This is exactly what happens when the snapper is basically doesn't have his mixologist on hand and he has to make himself a cocktail. It has to be pre-made clearly, as you can see. Which well, are ones. I, on the other hand, He's gone back. What? What are you? Anyway, what are you drinking? I have gone the complete opposite. And once again, people, there's a little hint in my drink as to what we're doing today. I have decided to make the El Drake. The El Drake, it turns out, may be the oldest cocktail ever recorded. Over it's first recorded over 425 years ago in 1586. And it is named after um, Sir Francis Drake, right? So Sir Francis Drake, you know, English, um, very famous English sailor, sailor naval man, 
uh, was over in, you know, really trying to sort of conquer the new world back in the 1500s. And at one point, you know, I mean, by, by the way, when we say sort of naval man, the Spanish, I think, believed he was a pirate. But I guess that's, you know, back then, you know, you're either a na you know, part of the Navy or a pirate, maybe both. Um, but his, his men were suffering from scurvy and all kinds of crazy things. And he was trying to figure out how he could heal them. And he actually sent a boat over from the Caribbean. And I believe it actually made land in the, in the US, in Florida. And they asked the local natives what he could do to get his men better. And he described the symptoms and they basically concocted something using, uh, and this may sound familiar to you, lime, uh, mint, uh, sugarcane, and a bark uh, known as uh, some sort of, I guess it was a bark from a local tree that they had down there. And they mixed it all together and they put it over rum. Now, if that doesn't sound familiar, it should, because what is a mojito? If it isn't sugar, lime, mint, without the bark and rum. It's an Eldrake. It's an Eldrake, people. Eldrake. Eldrake. And apparently the Eldrake worked. So the original, so I never knew a mojito was, came from such sort of, such a great background. But there you well, go. Here so, it is. So what I'm saying basically is a mojito is an English invention. Well, exactly. The original cocktail, people, is an English invention. So you, so Drake, we salute you, sir. That's actually Mine's delicious and it is in fact a mojito because I didn't put the bark in. Um, now before we get to our incredible guest and people this week we have pulled out all the stops and uh, we have something special for you called Booze News. Booze News people. Well in the world of Booze News I like a little ancient Booze News, a little historical Booze News and as this is a, a historical episode of Shaken and Stirred Show we're going to take you back to 2700 years ago. In other words the Iron Age. Now new evidence has come up to a light. No, no. What do we know? No, Two, 2700 years ago that was the Bronze Age. Iron Age. I thought no. it was Bronze Age too. Bronze Age or Iron Age? We'll have uh, to do no, our research. Do your research, whatever. Bronze Age, Iron Age. It's a bloody long time ago, right? It's what I'm trying to say here. Stop ruining booze news with your historical right. truths. Okay, right. who knows what they were doing back then? Know, what we do know is that scientists have looked through fecal matter, paleo-fecal matter by all accounts, um, and discovered that there is some sort of fermentation in there that is discovered only in blue cheese and beer. So our ancient ancestors were enjoying blue cheese and beer 2,700 years ago, which makes it official, people. Blue cheese and beer go really well together. That, my friends, is the news. In case uh, you didn't realise, thousands of years. I'll tell you one more thing to add to that, that our ancestors 2,700 years ago were clearly having a lot more fun than our fucking scientists poking through their shit. I'd rather drink it. I'd rather drink beer and eat cheese and fucking poke through someone's feces to just, yeah, anyway. And on that note, let us introduce our wonderful guest. Our guest today is a distinguished university scholar and professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia, where he's also an expert in Asian studies, psychology, philosophy, and it's history. He's clearly uh, far too advanced for this podcast, is all I can say. And he's the author of a new book called Drunk. So, Tom, you're going to have to change the name of your autobiography. 
it's all about how we sipped, danced, and stumbled our way to civilization, which does actually sound like your autobiography, Tom. Please welcome Edward Sligerland. Edward, how are you? I'm great. Are you Edward or Ted? I go by Ted, but people find that confusing. So you can use whichever you want. Oh, well, I think Ted isn't too confusing for us. We can not this early in the evening. We can do we can do Ted. We can that, handle that. All right. If you like Ted, we can do Ted. So Ted, welcome to the Shaken and Stirred Show. Great to have you. Congratulations on your book, Drunk, and all your other your other books and everything else that you've done. You've got quite an illustrious career. Um, what are you drinking? As you know, this is we talk about cocktails at the top of the show always. I have a Negroni. A Negroni. My favorite, a Negroni, my favorite cocktail. And why is it your favorite? Um, I just like, I like bitter cocktails. I like the taste profile. And it's got a special place in my heart now because it's actually related to the book. I was working on the book proposal and I had written about 10 versions of it. And I kept sending the new versions to my agent and she said, yeah, yeah not good. <laughs> and she refused to send the proposal out. And it was very frustrating because I had everything all the science was there, the basic arguments were there, but she was right, it didn't, um, it didn't pop. And I realized I hadn't taken my own advice in the book, which I talk in the book about the relation between alcohol and creativity. I hadn't written any of the proposal while drunk. And so I was on a business trip, this was pre-COVID days. I had about three hours before I had to meet my host for dinner. And so I went down to the hotel bar with my laptop and ordered a Negroni. And by the end of Negroni number one, uh, essentially the first, what's now the first page of the book just appeared to me. It, it really, the experience was that I was just taking dictation from somewhere else. And that was, became the beginning of the proposal. That's people love the beginning of the book now. It all was due to writing, finally sitting down and writing some of it at about 0.08 blood alcohol content, so. Did you, that is, that's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great um, story. And we've, I think, I don't know, I, personally, I've written lots of things after, after a drink or two that I thought were absolutely brilliant. Do you follow any rule about, I mean, obviously in this instance, you're then having dinner and then you're, you know, go to bed and then the next day, do you, do you have a rule about writing things down uh, with a Negroni and, and, and then having a kind of, moment where do you have a kind of time frame where you where you, where you don't where you don't send anything do you then read it when 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 the brain off you, you have know you I mean? have you have to read it the next morning over coffee right. before you send it to anyone yeah emails is emails above all else yeah no i mean i think i mean how many of us have done that right that written the email drunk or, or late into the evening and then thought the next yeah. day oh crap but did, did i you, send that right your proposal did you the next morning sorry so just quick quick question did you write the next morning when you wrote it and had your coffee did you think it was as brilliant did you change anything on it or did you just think wow okay that's not much i tweaked a couple little connector articles in a sentence or two but it was basically what i wrote so that happens yeah. sometimes or sometimes you know there's a gem in there but it's surrounded by a bunch of dumb stuff that you have to cut out but it's the the alcohol is useful for those moments when you, you know, banging your head against the wall, like writing an 11th version the same way I was doing the other 10 wasn't going to help. Um, I needed just a fresh 
way of starting the book that would draw people in. And that's what alcohol is helpful for is, you know, thinking outside the box, what, what cognitive scientists call lateral thinking, where you're, you're right. thinking in a way that's connecting different things. I mean, Ted, that's why right now I recommend you take, you actually down your Negroni. And yes, so I'll be more interesting. And, yeah. pour, pour yourself another and we will get on with this. Pop. That's why we do this whole podcast. I mean, everyone out there, you now have official proof as to why our podcast is actually so entertaining and brilliant. Yes. It's because it is done um, with a cocktail in hand. And, you know, a couple of things. We've had a lot of experts on here talk about success and how to do things right. And all the rest of it. they've never, ever recommended having a drink. Um, yep. Although we have talked about it with musicians. We've had a few, you know, leading musicians and they'll all tell you literally their albums were made either intoxicated on drugs or alcohol or something. But rarely yeah. or to never when they're sober. But also, that's not true because I said many times that there's been a couple of these podcasts, but normally this time of night. So for me, I'm in England, right? It's 10 o'clock at night. So normally I've had dinner and I've, I don't know what I have, a couple of drinks. And so for me, it's like almost bedtime. But, you know, I'd stayed up to do a podcast. So there's, there's, it might, so quite often it's kind of like a cocktail and a kind of, you know, there are like, there are things going on. You're double <laughs> fisting. All right. You can also see my desk. It's also covered in things that I'm right in the middle of writing, which. I will definitely read tomorrow morning. But Nige, uh, I often say when he's accidentally sort of sucked back a martini on the podcast, his questioning, and he, he generally does become way more interesting. And I'm always trying to get him to actually to have one or two more. get going, you know? So just right. on. So before well, we move on, cheers to what that, are, by the way. What, what are I, you guys drinking? I decided to go, just in, in honor of you, I decided to go with an El Drake. Are you familiar mm. with the El Drake? I am not, no. Well, you, you should be familiar with the old drink because apparently it is the oldest cocktail on record. Um, okay. Created by, uh, I guess, Drake, our, our, the, the very oh, famous, Sir Francis Drake, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the very famous English sailor um, who, back in the 1500s, you know, when he was over in the, you know, basically discovering the new world and, you know, sort of pirating the Spanish, uh, this guy, you know, had his men had scurvy and he went off to sort of get a fix for them and anyway, ended up making a mojito with some bark. And, and, <laughs> and uh, this is what it essentially is. And it worked. And it's the first recorded instance of mixing both bitters, sweets and alcohol in one thing in, in a shaken cocktail with the bark. I decided to leave out the bark. And it's really right. a, a mojito, not an El Drake. But yeah, for you, I thought I'd do something historical and dig up. And I learned something. That's great. I learned something. Yeah. How do you make your Negroni before we move on? Do you have a special way? No, Negroni is very simple. You know, one equal parts gin and Campari and sweet vermouth. Um, so sometimes you should try a little. You should. That's what they say. But if you are a bitters man, Mm -hmm. You should probably try less vermouth, double up on the gin, and perhaps you know that's what I would recommend. I'm I'm okay. a big Negroni person. I must have made more Negronis this year than I can you know make sense of. And the more I got into it, I mean, I used to also add a little club soda to the top as well to make it a little longer. Interesting. But okay. Yeah, I use a bittersweet vermouth, so it's a, it's not quite the full on sweet, um, which helps. And I sometimes add a little bitters to it, mm. uh, which is oh. which. Um, raises that bitter profile, taste profile. We're going to call that the Slingland. All right. <laughs> That's what it will be now known as. All right. Um, so, I mean, let's get into it, right? You, you've got this, this book, Drunk, you know, a, a deep dive in the alcohol-soaked origins of civilization, as I've heard it written about. And 
you know, you've written a lot of other, you've written a lot of other things outside of, of this subject. What got you into thinking even about writing a book about alcohol and, you know, and, and the history of alcohol? Partly it was inspired by some reactions to my previous trade books. So my, I have another trade book. I've written a bunch of academic books, but this sure. is my, my second popular one. The first one was called Trying Not to Try. And it's about this early Chinese ideal of Wu Wei, uh, effortless action is how I translate it. Basically like being in the zone, uh, being in a state where you lose a sense of yourself as an agent and you're relaxed, you're creative people like you, you're socially successful, everything goes the way you want it to go. This was an ideal for the early Chinese, but they faced this tension that I studied academic, it was what my dissertation was about, this what I call the paradox of Wu Wei, is if you know that to be successful, you have to relax and be spontaneous, how do you force yourself to relax? How do you try not to try? And it's a, I point out in the book, it's a genuine paradox because when you're consciously trying not to try, the part of your brain you're activating is actually the part you're trying to shut down. So it's directly paradoxical. And so I walk in that book, I walk people through the various strategies the early Chinese came up with for kind of getting around sidestepping the paradox. So using meditation techniques or ritual, they have various kind of tricks to try to get you around it. But there's one early text that talks about uses the, the drunken person as a metaphor for the sage, the person who's in a state of way. And it's meant as just an analogy or a metaphor, but it made me start to think that alcohol might be a cultural technology that cultures have used as a way, as a response to the paradox of way. It's a chemical, you can't directly, if I say to you, relax, you know, you're going on a date and I tell you the date will go best if you are relaxed, confident, you just be yourself, but you're nervous and you're not relaxed. Me saying relax, relax, relax is not going to help you, but me mixing you a Negroni might actually help you quite a bit. <laughs> so it's a way to reach in essentially and turn down the, the, the part of the brain that's the problem here is the prefrontal cortex, the center of cognitive control, executive function. Um, very important part of the brain. We need it to function. We need it to be responsible adults, but it gets in the way of spontaneity. It gets in the way of creativity and it gets in the way in certain situations of um, social trust and social interaction. And so I came to start to think about alcohol as a cultural technology that you the cultures use to turn down the PFC when it's useful to do so. And so that was that was one of the ways I got into it. So it's a chemical trick for getting around the paradox of, of trying not to try. Don't you hate when your beverage isn't the right temperature or you have to cool your glass of wine with ice cubes that just water it down? Well, I have the solution for you. Vochill is the beautifully designed complement to every wine glass, keeping your wine at the perfect temperature from first sip to last. It's so simple to use. Just store the chill cradle in the freezer for at least three hours before use. Then, when you're ready for a glass of wine, simply remove the chill cradle from the freezer and attach it to the stand. Next step is to pour your chilled wine and let your glass rest in Vochill between sips to keep it perfectly chilled. Think of using it like a coaster. Then simply lift your glass out to sip and enjoy. It's so easy. 
Wine experts agree that serving wine at the proper temperature is crucial to wine enjoyment and only Vochil allows you to preserve that temperature in your glass without compromising the wine or the wine experience. However, it's not only for wine. You can use your Vochil with stemmed coupe glasses or stemmed craft beer glasses to keep all your beverages the perfect temperature. Now the holidays are fast approaching and this is an amazing gift for any wine lover in your life that they don't already have. The best value on their site is the perfect set, which includes two Vochils and two extra chill cradles. And with this, you would be perfectly set for any evening or afternoon of wine enjoyment. And you can use my code NIGEL20, N-I-G-E-L-2-0, to get 20% off your entire purchase through 1231. That's the 31st of December, people, the end of this year. So, just for you, cheers. You'll be vote chilling before you know it. You know, we do a, a, a section on the show called Booze News, and I love historical booze news about, you know, when people first started drinking, you know, when they found sort of, uh, you know, ancient distilleries and what have you. And yeah. Oftentimes, it sort of takes us back to uh, Asia and mm-hmm. sort of, you know beer drinking and wine drinking and making it out of rice and this that. And it's thousands and thousands of years ago. And you know, I happen to be married to a Chinese woman, and my her, her obviously her family is Chinese, and you know I've spent time over there, and I spent a lot of time in Asia. And if there's one thing that that strikes you straight away when you're over there, is their lack of ability to actually um, drink properly mm-hmm. in a way that, we, that sort of Europeans oh, drink. Metabolize. Yeah, metabolize. They're just not very good at metabolizing. My, my wife will have literally like a glass of wine and, and that's enough. Uh, and if she has two, yeah. then it's like, woo. And then, it, you know, if there's anything more than that, she's going to wake up with a headache. And it's, yeah. you know, you, you talk about, you know, evolution and, and mm-hmm. how us being able to d- sort of deal with alcohol. You know, you'd think considering they seem to have invented alcohol almost, you know, that, that they would have, I don't know, have dealt, you know, developed a better way to metabolize a better enzymes. You know, mm-hmm. has your research unearthed anything actually, you know, additional in that area? That's actually a central uh, point I make in the first chapter of the book is this particular, it's sometimes called the Asian flushing syndrome. Um, it plays a central role in my argument. So my argument is that the standard scientific story we've been told about alcohol is it's an evolutionary mistake. So uh, is alcohol just happens to, to hijack pleasure centers in our brain. So it's costly, it's physiologically harmful, it's addictive, but it kind of just parasitizes our brain if you wanna think of it that way. It has no benefits, it's just kind of a mistake. Um, the problem with that is how costly it is because part of my point is that alcohol is physiologically costly, it's socially costly, uh, to be maintained in our gene pool, a taste for alcohol has to have some positive benefits to outweigh the costs. But one possibility I do consider is that evolution just hasn't figured out a solution. So it's possible alcohol's figured out, a, basically, if you want to give agency to it, it's figured out a way to trick our brain. It's parasitized our reward circuits. And genetic evolution just hasn't figured out a solution to that yet is one possibility. The problem with that is exactly what you were talking about. So that this metabolism problem is a result of two separate mutations 
and the metabolic pathway. So when you drink alcohol, it gets broken down in your body in two steps. So there's one enzyme that comes in and breaks it down into a still very nasty precursor molecule. And then a second enzyme that takes that and turns it into acetic acid, which can get eliminated very easily. Um, people with syndromes were in, it tends to be concentrated in East Asia where they can't metabolize alcoholism well. Have, uh, the first one is very efficient. So they take alcohol and immediately convert it into acetaldehyde, this intermediate chemical. But then their second, uh, the second enzyme is very slow. So it's the picture, the image I use in the book is Charlie Chaplin on, in, on the production line and the, the boxes keep coming and they're falling all over the place. So all this acid aldehyde is building up in your system and you can't get rid of it because your second enzyme is not very good. Um, and that causes flushing, heart palpitations, nausea. It's what makes you, you can have maybe one drink and then you really shouldn't have more. It's, um, so it's very unpleasant if you wanna drink more than one. But if evolution wanted to come up with a solution to the problem of alcohol, that's the solution. It's perfect. And in fact, it's so perfect that uh, chemical analog for this is used as a treatment for alcoholism. It's given to alcoholics so that they become averse to drinking alcohol. If alcohol really was just a cost for human beings, that gene complex should have, so it evolved seven to 10,000 years ago. It's been around forever in East Asia, probably around the same time rice agriculture started there. Um, and yet it's remained pretty much limited to a small area of East Asia. It hasn't spread. So the for me, the, yeah, the chosen people, for me, it's evidence that you know, alcohol, there must be something else going on. We have a genetic silver bullet that would solve the problem of alcoholism. And yet it remains geographically pretty limited. But, but on so on one hand, you've got the fact that alcohol is essentially poison, right? So mm -hmm. yeah. it's not good for us. And hence, if we develop an enzyme or we, we develop the ability not to, to digest it properly, metabolize it properly, that's better for us in the long run. And as you said, it's actually given to people who are alcoholics to stop them wanting to drink. But on the flip side of that, you know, you started the conversation with it makes us creative. It helps mm -hmm. us do all the, you know, it, it, it opens up a whole other world to us. And, you know, there are obviously various different things we've spoke we've had sort of mushroom experts on the show we've talked to all okay. kinds of people who talk about how you know you can get over issues and and problems you have in life by you know taking yourself to another level where you know you you, you, you all those pathways which have been carved out in your brain to sort of take which make you fear something all of a sudden you yeah. don't fear them and that's because of you know there's essentially getting intoxicated to a point where your brain creates new pathways and sees new ways to get there so do you think that's potentially more powerful or why is there these two these two different avenues that, that we've sort of gone in, like the, the Asians in that area, it's stuck in that direction, perhaps the rest of the world. Is it, is it, is, is there a reason about that? Is there any sort of anthropological reason? Well, the, the, there's debate about what the function of this mutation is. It, I, it seems my, the most likely thing seems to be it protects against tuberculosis. And it may also protect against fungal poisoning, which is something that would be a problem if you're you're starting rice agriculture and you're storing rice and it's you know it would go bad in the warehouse. So it seems to have some function there. But basically, um, people who have this, my argument would be if you have this Asian flushing gene syndrome, you're protected against alcoholism, but you're losing other functions. You're losing the creativity function because this thing you're talking about with mushrooms is on steroids what what alcohol is doing when you when i had that one negroni 
it was a mild version of what a mushroom trip is doing. It's it's allowing it's turning down the prefrontal cortex, and that's allowing different parts of your brain to start to communicate in ways that they they don't normally. Normally, the prefrontal cortex is the playground monitor, keeping everybody in line. You distract the playground monitor for a little while and stuff can happen that's unexpected. And that's essentially what the nice thing about alcohol is if you do mushrooms, it's a, you know, it's a day long thing and you're going to come up with all kinds of crazy things and only a small percentage of them are going to be useful. Alcohol is a milder version of that. It's something you can do for a couple hours. Um, a good per percentage of what you're writing. So I've also written stuff on acid or on mushrooms. Mm. And I didn't really send any of that in the next day. <laughs> and sometimes it was useful for helping me work out personal issues, but you wouldn't write a book proposal on acid. Um, yeah, yeah. What, so about, also, what about guests literally did that though? Okay, yeah. Well, maybe, it's, maybe <laughs> it could work for some people. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine it's not if on, when you look on the sort of you know the the, the sales the sales list probably he was I number one seller number one well, all right number one best selling book but anyway it, 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 you know I think it, different strokes for different folks I'm curious about micro dosing though in this instance because people talk about micro dosing with mushrooms yeah. um, a lot and is that something you can really do with alcohol does it work in the same way. Yeah, so what it does, so if mushrooms are just a really extreme version of what alcohol is doing to your brain, then the way to kind of dial that down would be microdosing. So at the end of the book, I talk about microdosing because alcohol is not, is not ideal. Um, it actually is an amazing technology. If you gave a group of a team of cultural engineers a task, you said, we need a substance that's going to be easy to make, make it out of anything. Um, it's easy to dose. It'll have similar cognitive effects on everyone across individuals. It will get eliminated from the system very quickly. So short um, half-life in the body. Uh, it would invent something very much like alcohol. The, the, I think in my mind, the worst thing about alcohol is the physiological impact. It is really harmful to our liver. It raises, uh, it's a carcinogen. Um, and probably the worst part is that it's addictive. It's physically addictive. And so it's possible that something like microdosing could get you that same, the same effects without the physiological harm and, uh, and without the physical addiction. The, 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 um, you know, I'm sitting in England, we got a reputation for, you know, people drinking too much, probably getting problematic, all the rest of it. I then look over to, you know, the neighbors, the French, I mean, the French now, obviously, there's going to be they're going to be probably you know there, there are problems. They've got problems. They've got you know alcohol. They've got addiction issues and all of that sort of stuff. But you know, ingrained in their culture, for at lunch, you know, you go have lunch with a French family. You'll sit down, you have a tub, You'll sit there. You have a glass of wine, red wine or two, um, and then you'll get up and go do your thing. And it's it, it, it's essentially microdosing. Mm -hmm. Right. But at the same time, it's very culturally embedded in their kind of in social in the social norms. And it's not something that is necessarily harmful. I wouldn't say harmful when you sort of say carcinogenic and poison. I mean, it's not necessarily harmful in the sense that the, the dose that they're, that they're culturally, if they're just literally sitting down as part of their sort of setup and their meal and their social mm -hmm. moment, um, they seem to be able to. You know, generally, I would say more often than not, 
actually use alcohol um, in, 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 in the way that, that, you're, that you're describing as you know, the, the, the benefits for it and you know, it ticks the boxes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so in the final chapter, I talk about this, the, what anthropologists call the Northern versus Southern Europe drinking styles. And they seem to be two different cultural strategies for managing alcohol and trying to capture the benefits of alcohol without, while minimizing the downside. So Northern European drinking cultures uh, like England, like the US, um, Russia, Germany, drink to get drunk. Um, you drink a lot of distilled liquors. It tends to be a bunch of males together drinking without a meal. So just drinking to drink. Uh, drunkenness is not only not shameful, but maybe it's kind of celebrated. Like it's something you do with your mates to show that you're one of the, you know, your buddy, your real man. Um, it's taboo for children. So children are strictly forbidden to children. And that tends to lead to really problematic relationships to alcohol. So it's, it's probably the case that cross-culturally, about 15% of the human population has a genetic propensity to alcoholism. It's strongly heritable. And yet actual alcoholism rates really vary culture to culture. And it's probably because of different cultural tools. So then you look at Southern European cultures, France, Italy, Spain, they drink mainly beers and wines, much safer alcohols to drink. They only drink them at the meal table. So they have them at lunch and dinner, but it's always in the context of a meal. It's always mixed company. You know, it's kids, grownups, grandparents are there. Um, kids get introduced to alcohol very easily, early. So they, you know, little kids. So my ex-wife is half Italian and my daughter grew up very, going to Italy every year, and very influenced by Italian culture. And she, you know, would get wine, at a very early age, would get wine mixed with some water at the dinner table, just like everyone else. Um, uh, you drunkenness is frowned upon. So visible drunkenness is kind of not something a grown-up does. You combine that. And then because it's not taboo, kids learn that alcohol is just a part of life. It's something you have with meals, it enhances food. <clears throat> that Southern drinking culture seems to be a way to uh, use alcohol in a way that makes it like microdosing, that makes it, that kind of forces people to consume it in a sustainable way. And so that's one of my arguments is we need to kind of, Northern drinking cultures need to start thinking in a more Southern yeah, way. <laughs> so it doesn't have to, it's not just, you know, it's not a problematic when you're looking at the pros of alcohol in, in society and actually, you know, for cultural achievement. And as you said, you know, to write your proposal, yeah. um, you know, to actually, to, to actually find the usefulness and the positives of alcohol. Yeah, you know, they're it, they're out there. There are a lot of them, but 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 again, it's it is easy. I guess it's easy to, to sort of to literally the Northern European, Southern Europe, because you're absolutely right. The Italians, you know, I remember when I was sixteen, I go to the Irish bar in Florence on a school trip, and uh, these Italians order pints of Guinness for the novelty value. I think probably yeah, they had yeah, yeah. And I would literally sit on the bar, and I never, I didn't buy a drink all night. And in those days, before you know, you weren't worried about sort of germs and things. I guess when you're sixteen. And I'd just sit at the end of the bar, just picking up these Italians would take a couple of sips of these pints of, you know, a pint of beer anyway. They were just like, God, a lot of, you know, they'd drink the piccolo or whatever. They yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'd sit there and they'd have a couple of sips of these pints of Guinness and put them down and walk off. And they, they, they had no interest in, in drinking that pint. So I spent all the 
basically drinking pints of Guinness. <laughs> drinking leftover pints of Guinness from the Someone's put a whole near virtually <laughs> full pints, but that there, there's the North South divide, yeah. right? There, you know. And when you see a drunk person wandering around Florence, it's an English tourist. It's not an English tourist. It was probably Tom. Um, it was probably Tom. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's quite, why, I mean, why it's celebrated. That's just very exactly. quick, just out, out of interest. Why do you think uh, it's possible for drunkenness to to have got to a point in our society where it is celebrated? Because this is a, it's quite a new thing, isn't it? No, it's not a new thing. A lot of cultures um, periodically will use blowout. So. I argue in the book, most of the benefits of alcohol are captured at that kind of moderate 0.08 BAC level. So that's one Negroni. It's, you know, a couple beers, a couple glasses of wine. That's where we get the creativity benefits. That's where we get the social benefits. You also see that cultures sometimes, especially cultures that don't have access to mushrooms or LSD, they don't have stronger drugs, sometimes use alcohol in really extreme ways periodically in a kind of like hazing or bonding ritual. So it's a way to um, really severely make yourself vulnerable to other people. So, so men will use it in environments where they want to, you know, mill it. So I talk in the book about um, this Navy SEAL commander who at the end of their training period takes everyone out to this bar where they get really drunk. They get way past 0.08 on tequila shots. But it's a way for him, in his view, it's a way to bomb people. So it's, it's you're opening, your, you're making yourself very vulnerable by getting that drunk with another person. You're um, opening yourself up cognitively. So with the PFC gone, you start saying stuff that's true. <laughs> Maybe you don't want other people to know or that you wouldn't normally say. Um, and there's also the pain aspect, I think, is part of it too. It's like hazing. Um, you know, you all know that you're hurting yourselves and you're going to be hurting the next morning, but it's going to be a shared pain. So there is a, cultures do use this and historically across culturally, you see this <clears throat> as a way to bond, especially uh, men together in a way that is dramatic. Um, mm. But what's weird in Northern drinking cultures is that people are doing it every weekend um, or no. more than that, which is not, yeah. not good. Well, I had, I had these, um, but well, ten years ago, I had used to have this amazing group of Polish guys over here working builders, and they were they were phenomenal, phenomenally hardworking, and they were you know, and they had a again this culture of they would um disappear. Sometimes they wouldn't turn up for work on Monday, and I'd know that basically yeah. it was probably going to be Thursday. But when I saw them, <laughs> yeah. so from Monday through Tuesday and through Wednesday the group of men, again, all together, they all do it at the same time. They just literally not time up for work. There's no explanation. They're not like, we're going to go and get pissed. They were just literally, it would just happen. I would occasionally go into where they were, where they were saying, and, the, and the, like, you know, it was literally like walking into something out of, um, I don't know, it was like a kind of, you know, something that you'd imagine Caligula used to, you know, Caligula party. It was just phenomenal. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was, it was, it was back in alien to the extreme. It was extraordinary. And it's what you're describing, basically, these kind of men bonding. And they yeah. were and it all and on and on. And there was no kind of like, let's go to sleep, wake up, feel your shit, have another drink. This was just like, we'll pass out, we'll we'll come around at about three in the morning, we'll start drinking again. And it would just go, you know, it was this extraordinary yeah. bonding thing. The, 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 it, it was it was a monthly occurrence, though. You know, mm -hmm. I and mean, if you think, it's, it's just quite a lot of time, quite a lot of damage. If you're going to do that to yourself 
I'd yeah. love to see that. I'm not sure if you've ever, if you've, if you've experienced this, but I mean, Tom and I both went to school with a guy called Philip Lapierre, who was a German actually, and uh, went to a college in Germany in Cologne. And I went out to visit him, and this is, must have been 25 years ago, and he was German aristocracy. Uh, and you know, oh, they can drink. They would drink <laughs> like there was no tomorrow. And in fact, yeah. I went to a private men's club with him, which had been around for apparently a thousand years, this yeah. fraternity of oh, drinkers. In, inside of this place, they would, this is what happened, this is a true story. Um, we would we, we sat there in thrones around a table, thrones, <laughs> absolute okay. thrones. Each barn had their own throne with, yeah. and they had been there for hundreds of years by all accounts with people, women who would come in and pour us beer out of these jugs into our beer, overflowing out of the class, onto the floor, all over mm. us as we were drinking it. We, I, at one point I was so drunk, I didn't know, I was like, what is happening? They jumped up and started to sword fight. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. I got yeah. the and it was and it was and it was about you actually had to cut the other person on the head, on the face, right, with yeah. the sword, right. And I'm like, what? This is now. This is not. I'm not talking about a thousand years ago. Yeah. This is like twenty years ago, right? And then I was like, okay. I, and he, my friend said to me, you need to go to the to this, and he called it something. And I'm like, what's that? And he's like, it's a vomitorium. Like, <laughs> the vomitorium, vomitorium. <laughs> and, and literally it's a bathroom where if you can imagine a, a, ma a male urinal where you pee instead it's at basically it's higher up head level <laughs> yeah. and you vomit it's just for vomiting into you puke into it you press the button it flushes it down and away then you go back in and you sit down and they give you another drink and that happens throughout the night so you can drink consume basically 20 30 pints of beer which would kill you otherwise pretty much and you know at least it almost did me these guys all seem to be fine the next day i have yeah, no idea yeah. how um but you know this is a sort of a tradition isn't it culturally kind of cultural tradition in so many places well, culturally they stopped evolving a thousand years ago then. <laughs> yeah really. i mean i don't know that'll be my take on it like the sun no, no it's they stopped after pint number one you know yeah, that's a classic warrior culture type thing, right? So you got, I mean, it's its significant that they've got the swords and everything. It's something that um, may, maybe this is one of the reasons it's a Northern European tradition is this kind of Viking warrior culture, um, which is not necessarily helpful today <laughs> when your problem is, you know, getting through a Zoom meeting. Or, no, well, um, I mean, they, they call themselves, I just remembered the name of them. They were called the Saxo Borusai. This particular yeah, yeah. group, this fraternity that had been around forever. Yeah. Now, I mean, on the same note, right? I, I was reading a book, and it's by one of our guests. Uh, it's the the Earl Spencer, which is Princess Diana's brother, and he's written yeah. a book called The White Ship, which you know basically talks about one of the worst sort of maritime disasters in British history in the 10th century or 11th century, 10 something, 1036 or whatever it is, and at that point. The you know the, the the you know this ship which was heading to Normandy from the UK happened to have the future King of England in it, and he basically gets all everyone on board drunk. He was a young boy. He was about seventeen years old. He thought it would be fun. He wanted to be entertaining, and he essentially gets everyone drunk on board the ship. And as a result, they hit a rock, and apparently all die except one person who tells the story. And it is, you know, and then it changes the course of history in England, right? It, it, it totally changes who the next king will be. Everything changes, and its whole book is written about it. But it's all because they got drunk on a ship, uh, yeah. in, in, you know, 
so and there's all these religious connotations to it too because religion and monks and the church is connected to, to alcohol and all the rest of it mm -hmm. you know talk to us a little bit about I guess, sorry also how ironic that 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 i thought you said white shit for a minute he'd written about <laughs> some autobiography but sorry we'll have to edit that bit out later um talking about yeah white shit okay trust me so ironic that you're talking about some pissed guy crashing a boat on the rocks when the guy's sister was smashed into a you know plaster alma their tongue in paris by the chauffeur who was Jean whatever it was who was drunk right history changes again you're right there we go there we go anyway sorry to interrupt yeah so the cost of alcohol but you wanted me to comment on something yes on the cost of alcohol i mean it, it seems to be that we've if you look through history, you know, it, there's so many instances of total disaster around alcohol, yet it doesn't seem to put us off our yeah. consumption of it. That's why it needs to be explained. And so, again, you know, the motivation, one of the other motivations for writing the book was that, the, you know, I'm very into evolutionary theory and trying to explain things from an evolutionary, both genetic and cultural evolutionary perspective. The, the evolutionary mistake thing just does not make sense considering things like losing kings <laughs> and royalty to, you know, alcohol, to uh, ancient Sumer took 50%, the estimate is 50% of their grain production went to making beer. So they were taking really nutritious grain and turning it into a neurotoxin. Um, Today in market economies, people spend about, they report spending a third on alcohol of what they spend on all foodstuffs in total. And that's almost certainly an underreport. Um, you look at the costs in terms of just alcoholism and domestic abuse and fights. It's just alcohol is really dangerous. It's a really dangerous substance. And there are very good, as I pointed out, very good genetic solutions to it. If just that, that, Asian flushing gene had spread all over the world, we'd be immune to the, the allure of alcohol. Because the standard, you know, the evolutionary mistake story is that, well, why do we drink? Well, because we like it, it makes us feel good. Why does it make us feel good? No reason, it just is a mistake. But we have a solution, genetic solution to that mistake, if that's the case. We also have cultural solutions, which is prohibition. So as long, we've been making and consuming alcohol as a species for about as long as we've been doing anything in an organized fashion. We were, we were creating breweries and making beer in the Fertile Crescent at least 13,000 years ago. So thousands of years before agriculture. But the, we culture, were, the cultural element that you talk about, the prohibition, that, that, it's like, that's like saying the war on drugs. I mean, it doesn't work. We know that doesn't work. Prohibition didn't work. It just created speakeasies and all the rest of it. So but why why did why yeah, didn't sorry. why didn't it work <laughs> so, yeah. and why is it the case that in there are cultures where they're pretty consistent about it so some islamic cultures have been pretty good about uh, banning alcohol at least for most people maybe not the elites um a group that stopped using alcohol should do better than groups that do um groups that are getting drunk every night and waking up with hangovers and you know, crashing their boats into rocks and killing off royalty. <laughs> Those groups should get outcompeted by groups that are drinking tea at night and, you know, going to bed at a nice hour. Um, but we don't see that. 
Um, but except, except when you say that, right? Except how you know this sort of Dutch courage, you know, an expression that we use in the UK because mm -hmm. partly because the Dutch, you know, and the Vikings you and all the rest Dutch, of it, yeah. right? Well, it, they, they, you know, they have this. You, you see, Vikings. There's an element of like the sort of superhuman strength and ability that one mm -hmm. potentially feels that you're invincible when you're drunk. You know that right. you know, you're intoxicated that you can kind of do anything that you can take a punch and you can give one. You know, and mm -hmm. you know if you're not if you can manage it on some level, there's a sort of a, I, I guess that's a, an aspect of it which maybe is also one of the reasons why you know certain people decide regardless of anything they're not going to give it up. Right? They mm -hmm. just it's too powerful. It gives them you know, as you said, the edge to, to, to even to procreate, right? Mm -hmm. Would you meet the girl unless you had to drink? And if right, we don't meet right. the girl, then what happens, right? right. And, and if we're not going to be creative, so if it makes us, it gives us the ability to potentially conquer in many ways, more, many, many ways, then and for, they... And for, and for Brewer's Droop there as well. I mean, you were about to say that you should see, you should see, it's a groups of people that don't drink, and don't you, you know, don't aren't crashing boats into rocks and all that, you know, and who have actually managed to expunge alcohol should you were about to say something you said should be doing better, mm -hmm. um, like sort of, you know, but but you got to the point you said but and then but why aren't they? But they aren't. They're a lot like the Asian flushing gene. They exist, but they've gone nowhere. Um, if you look at a map of where prohibition is actually enforced right now in the world, it's not very many countries. It doesn't cover very many people. Um, I talk about in the book this historic uh, encounter between, this was in um, the 7th century, I think, on the Volga River. There's an account of an Islamic uh, envoy. So he's going to visit a converted king in the area, to, I think, to check up on him, make sure he's actually really following the rules and stuff. And he runs into a bunch of Vikings and he writes about this and he's, in, he's impressed by them in some ways. They're huge. They're physically huge and very impressive. But they, he talks about, you know, basically lunchtime on, they start drinking and they get ridiculously drunk. He witnesses one murder. So they're killing each other when they get drunk. Um, they're falling asleep insensate at night where they could just be anyone who wanted to knock them out could do that. Um, they are not functioning well the next morning. Um, he's amazed at these. He thinks, he thinks they're animal-like. Um, and he's not drinking, right? He's, a, he's an observant Muslim. And I think this is a really significant moment in, for my story, in a sense, because here you have a culture that, at least at that time, is consistently prohibitionist. They're observing all the downsides of this alcohol-using culture and disapproving of them. Um, and yet the Vikings continued to do all right. <laughs> they ended up, you guys are probably both descendants of Vikings at some level. Um, so, and, you know, Islam did not take over all of Europe. And, um, and so, so why is that? And it's, you know, China um, tried to impose prohibition. The the um, one of the earliest myths we have from early China is the story about the invention of beer. So, and a mythical story, but it's revealing. So, this ancient sage king Yu um, is presented beer by this this woman who invented it and brewed it for the first time, and he tastes it and it makes him feel good, and he says it's delicious. And he orders her executed, and he says, "No one's allowed to make this anymore." 
<laughs> because it's so dangerous that it's going to lead to the end of civilization. Um, and so there are all these early proclamations against alcohol in China. And yet the Chinese continue to drink quite heavily um, and they still do today. So, so that's the puzzle. And so the, I think what I argue in the book is the answer to the puzzle is that you have to see the positive functions. So it's enhancing creativity. As a species, we are uniquely dependent. So, I mean, I'm using it for selfish reasons to get a book proposal accepted. The more significant issue is just as a species, we have to innovate. Humans are uniquely dependent on tools. We cannot survive without tools. And we're constantly having to innovate our tool sets because the environment's changing. We're competing with other groups that maybe are exploiting the environment better because they have better tools. To get better tools, you need innovation. And so alcohol is a crucial tool for doing that. Um, we need to get past cooperation problems. So once we start uh, in large scale societies and we're interacting with people who are not our relatives, they're people we don't know, we need a very quick way to feel like we can trust them, to feel like um, we can get past. I talk about these cooperation dilemmas that economists call by various names, things like the prisoner's dilemma, tragedy of the commons. We constantly face these situations where we get the best payoff if we can trust another person. We both do better if we can trust each other. Mm. And yet we're vulnerable to what economists call defection. We're vulnerable to them cheating on us and basically screwing us over. And so rational, self-interested individuals will always get a suboptimal payoff in those situations. They'll be distrustful, selfish, and everyone will be worse off. But humans solve these problems all the time. And one of the ways we do it is through alcohol. We, we sit down around a table, we all have some cocktails, and by drink number two, I feel like the things you're telling me are real. I feel like I know who you are. So it's, it's and I trust you. It's, it's kind of I asked a psychologist friend of mine once. Is you know is I was a bit worried. Is it ever okay to manipulate a situation or an individual? Mm -hmm. um, because I was in a scenario where I was dealing with somebody who was adversely affecting someone else. So and I said, is it ever okay to manipulate someone? Because I feel like. And he turned around and said, absolutely, yes, so long as it's positive manipulation, so long as the outcome is, is, is not, is, is not uh, um, you know, detrimental to them or to you or to what you're doing, as long as it's positive manipulation, absolutely. So, sorry, the reason I'm saying that is because should, should alcohol then you know, be construed and seen as a tool um, for, say, positive manipulation and, 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 and recognized as such is the problem that we're not, is, is one of the problems is that we're not recognizing and talking about that. Yeah, so we're essentially, it's mutual disarmament. When I am, when I sit down and have a couple of drinks with you, I'm voluntarily turning down my prefrontal cortex. And so in a way, I, the analogy I use in the book is we meet and we shake hands to show that we're not carrying a weapon in our dominant hand. We sit down, we do a few shots, we're taking our part of our brain out and putting it on the table and saying, I'm cognitively disarmed. You can believe what I say. Um, <clears throat> uh, alcohol's turning down your cognitive control. It's also pumping up uh, feel-good hormone. So it's pumping up serotonin and endorphins. It's making you feel better about yourself. It's making you feel better about other people. You actually like other people more when you're a little bit drunk. Um, 
it's it is manipulating it's manipulating people um right. but when people are doing it together and they're all doing it at the same time it's a very quick way to get past mutual suspicion in yeah. high stakes situations like treaties or contracts or whatever um and then in kind of more everyday situations it's a way to get past social awkwardness you know you're on a first date you're um, meeting a neighbor, you're welcoming your neighbor over for housewarming. Mm. Everyone has a drink. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Because they want to turn turn everything down, turn down the filters a bit, and then turn the feel good stuff up a bit do, as well. Do you have like, is your kind of message, do you have like, is your message like, um, you know, alcohol is, is gets a bad rap and it doesn't deserve, it doesn't deserve the kind of rap it gets. <laughs> It deserves to be, you know, the, I mean, the opposite deserves to be celebrated and talked about in a positive, you know, context. My, my take home message is that we are, our discussions of alcohol have been impoverished and kind of dumb, frankly. Um, so we, we look at alcohol only through this medical lens. What's the impact on the body? Um, the 99% <clears throat> of the scientific literature on alcohol is about alcoholism and addiction. And, um, we don't look at the positive functions of alcohol. Nowhere in policymakers' views, or nowhere on that landscape is when, you know, I'm an academic, I work in the university. Um, <clears throat> I'm a university administrator and I have to decide if it's okay for uh, professor to go out with his grad students after seminar and have beers. Someone's complained that this is happening. Um, how do I make a decision on that? Right now, on the negative side, I have physiological damage, addiction possibilities, uh, sexual, sexual harassment. Um, well, it's, it, these are genuinely problematic situations historically, right? Um, if I were a young woman, I wouldn't want to be wandering into, for instance, a hotel, a conference hotel bar at 10 p.m. with you guys there, <laughs> three drinks in, right? It's a there's a there's a laddishness that comes out, right? When men, and it's typically men drinking. Um, so administrators are only seeing lawsuits and damage and badness. And what's on the other side of the equation? Fun, maybe at most. And when fun is pitted against very specific costs, fun is always going to lose. And so the purpose of my book is just to say, hey, look, on the positive side of the ledger, it's not just fun. It's enhanced creativity. It's reduced inhibitions, which don't just mean sexual harassment, although they can mean that. They also mean that you know, a shy student who's afraid to say something in seminar maybe will blurt out the question that they've been wanting to ask this whole time. Um, maybe um, ideas will get voiced that wouldn't normally get voiced. Maybe just everyone will talk in a way that is more natural and productive than it would have been otherwise. Um, these are the things that we don't, they're not even on the radar right now. And so all I want, I'm at the end of the book, I'm agnostic. I say, look, um, you may decide, given the costs of alcohol, the obvious costs, you may look at all these social benefits and say, yeah, I'm still going to pass. I still don't think, you know, we should have this in our organization or I shouldn't have it in my life. But at least then you'll be making an intelligent decision with a rational, all, decision. A rational decision. And that's all that's I want right. is. Yeah, yeah right. So, so I, so, I, don't, I, I don't think okay. that I've ever been to a 
a meeting or a, even you know in working in, in in any industry that I've been a part of, whether it's you know finance or whether it's television production or whether it, and I've gone to you know the boss's office or whoever it might be and not seen normally a bottle of whiskey or a bottle yeah. of brandy up on the side with a couple of glasses, whether it's to celebrate a deal, whether it's to sit down and actually talk in the afternoon and evening, mm -hmm. like it's, 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 you know, and you talked earlier about, you know, Islam and, and how, except you said perhaps for the, the leaders who, mm -hmm. who might also have, you know, even though it's banned and, and I've been to, you know, countries in like Saudi Arabia and what have you and seen that they've had pictures that they literally moved the picture from the wall and behind it is a secret bar yeah. um right you know with all yeah. the drinks you could bloody imagine behind back there you know for me and, and it's you're right you know but it's that for that reason alone it seems like that it's sort of there's a power to, to alcohol that we, we we give it some sort of power there's an element of like it's the drink it's sort of religious it's sort of it's almost like we're going to anoint the deal with this drink mm -hmm. at this moment it, yeah it holds like a it's not just that you know these elements there's a sort of a higher power connected to it which is sort of connected to religion and i mean even mm -hmm. if you go to church it's like if you're going to drink god's you know christ's yeah. blood it's wine it's like it's throughout everything right it's 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 very hard to pull that apart that's why it seems it's almost impossible to sort of cancel it in a way yeah, but it get you know it gets its symbolic power from its actual pharmacological properties. Mm -hmm. So it's not a mistake. There's a reason that it's alcohol. They have a bottle of whiskey and not yogurt because <laughs> it could just be yogurt, right? Why? So you know, my evolutionary mind wants to say, why is it not another substance? And there's a reason that it's this substance. Um, and there's a reason that I talk in the book about in the context you're you're just talking about when Skype was invented everyone predicted that business travel would just cease because business people are rational. If I can Skype with my, I'm in London and I can Skype with these people in Shanghai, why would I get on a plane and dirt jet lag and all this cost to go there? Um, and yet until the pandemic, business travel remained unchanged, increased if anything. And that's because unless I'm doing something stupidly simple, like just ordering paper clips from you, I'm not, I wanna see you. And I want to not just see you, I want to drink with you. So mm -hmm. business travel remained unchanged because, as you said, no important business deal gets done without people sitting down and drinking together. And that's not a mistake. There's actually, I talk about really the, the good scientific reasons this is the case. Um, it, it really is a useful tool in human cooperation. In ritual. In ritual. Literally, I mean, I've done, you know, raised money for a startup during the pandemic. And mm -hmm. I could tell you that all the ones, all the deals I sealed were the ones with the, I'd actually gone in and sat down and had a drink with them. And mm -hmm. if I hadn't, if I hadn't done that, I didn't seal the deal with them. It was yeah. simple as that. I could zoom away and have the best zoom ever, but then it was always, oh, well, yeah, I'm not sure. And if I actually sat down with them, managed to have a drink, we yeah. left with a deal in hand. Yeah. So, so you know, riddle me that I mean it's sort of it, it's there's an element of something like to your point there's looking at you someone in the eye you know taking mm -hmm. out that part of the brain and going okay well now I but it's a truth serum now I, I can honestly see I like this guy I trust him now yeah. trust him you know it's sort of weirdly enough when that bad behavior actually creates trust you know the fact yeah. that you you know there's an element of like okay we've both let our, our sides down and we've mm -hmm. somehow done a sort of we're now blood brothers or something we're somehow connected um that is so important now you also talk about a little bit about um you know the history of alcohol and and how it was it's become more and more potent 
right yeah. recently and how you know you talk we just mentioned whiskey and you know you know clearly you know alcohols that are sort of 40% proof 60% proof 80% proof you know that's new right that is not something that historically has has been around what why is that why have we decided to make it so much more poisonous we figured it out <laughs> we we will probably always would have liked to have distilled liquors but um dis distillation is really hard to do in practice so um this is you know i talk about this in the final chapter the the particular novel dangers that alcohol presents in the modern world one of them is isolation and we could talk a little bit about that the fact that people are drinking alone in a way that we've never done before uh, alcohol consumption has always been a communal activity it's always been a public activity it's always been ritually regulated um, but another problem is distilled liquors and so for most of our history we've been drinking relatively weak beers and fruit wines um, so the beers clock it in about two to three percent abv wines maybe eight or nine with modern yeast you can get beers much stronger you can get them up to like nine or ten you can get wines up to uh, 16, mm -hmm. uh, you know, crazy Australian Shiraz, they can get them up to 16, but there's a limit. So mm -hmm. alcohol comes with a safety feature, if you want to think of it that way, where, um, you know, yeast are taking sugar, converting it into alcohol, alcohol is a poison, yeast are relatively resistant to poison, which is why they make it because they kill off the bacteria they're competing with and they get to get all the nice food but they're not immune to alcohol. And so at a certain point, they kill themselves, they shut themselves down. And that happens, the max, the most hardy yeast we've been able to breed in the world shut down at 16%. But if you can figure out a way to heat up alcohol, like a weak wine or beer and capture the ethanol, which comes off first, boils off first and make it into a liquid again, and then boil it and do that again, you can get 80, 90 proof stuff. Um, that's really hard to do. You need metallurgy. You need to be able to control temperatures very precisely. It's something we didn't master on a large scale in Europe until really the 16, 1700s. And so distilled liquors are, you know, I'm telling an evolutionary story that starts 10 million years ago with our primate ancestors who first adapted biologically to eating fruit that had alcohol in it. Um, a couple hundred years ago is, is a blip you know, it's yesterday. And so it's possible that we are actually not psychologically or culturally well adapted to drinking Negronis. <laughs> Negronis are just, this is just like the amount of alcohol in this thing I just drank is, is more alcohol than a typical human would probably have access to in, over the course of an entire mealtime in a traditional society. And so that's what makes alcohol so much more dangerous. And then, and then the fact that we're we have access. I have a liquor cabinet. I can. I have access to it in my home. And now you've had uh, one Negroni. And I have not. You probably yeah. got a stack of work to do. So when you stop talking, you ask idiot. You could, you're just like shit. Now I've got to go and work. So I said yeah. you're going to churn out the most unbelievable body of stuff tonight. That's it. And then right. just bring over a coffee and we go. Like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, not so good. This wasn't a good Negroni session. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Uh, I mean, I feel like we could talk to you all night. This, you are literally our subject matter. That we 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 discussed so much of what you've, you've we've spoken about today in many ways over the the past year and a half talking on this podcast in various different ways, and it's just amazing to have it sort of summed up in a book called Drunk 
by Edward Slingerland. Edward, before you go, Ted, we've got something called Last Orders, which we, is a sort of little rapid fire question moment where we kind of just get to know you a little bit better. I think Tom um, has got a, a couple of questions to start off with. I, well, I have to. You see, I have to do this. I have to. Fight, I have to think of the questions before I've even spoken to you, mate. So during during you know talking to you, I'm trying to sort of actually just going all right. I line through that question, you know. <laughs> um, so let me. So let me, let me. Hopefully these are interesting. I don't mean you may find them wrong, but your fantasy fantasy dinner party. You're allowed to invite three people. They could be dead. They could be. They could be dead or alive, or whoever. They could be your. They could be related. They could be whoever. Anyone. Who who would be your three, 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 uh, three people you would just top of your list? Huh. Probably Zhuangzi, who is an early Taoist philosopher. He's the guy who used the drunken person as the metaphor for the sage. And Nietzsche. Yeah. And my partner would be a fun conversation. <laughs> Who's a social neuroscientist. Really? <laughs> really good answer as well because if, if your partner listens to this yeah she's just like that yeah she, she didn't enjoy the conversation yeah Wait a second. <laughs> sorry that wasn't designed to get you in deep shit or anything and um, Bo Derek. yeah i get it okay. <laughs> and Bo Derek, yes <laughs> she'd so, be pouring the drinks yeah um so the, so to get a message across that alcohol is good where do you start i mean where do we start by pointing out the positive functions. And it's, you know, alcohol, and the point of the book is not alcohol is good, right? It's so, that- so it can be, so alcohol doesn't need to be bad, can, alcohol can be yeah. good. Yeah, it's just, you know, let's, let's actually have grown up conversations about this. Um, and let's also, you know, at the end of the book, I also talk a bit about just this weird um, puritanism we have or squeamishness talking about pleasure so, you know, when I'm, when I'm making an evolutionary case for alcohol, I can't talk about pleasure because evolution doesn't care about whether we're happy or not. But at the end of the book, I point out that we're not our genes. We actually care a lot about pleasure. <laughs> so on top of all of the evolutionary functions of alcohol, it makes us feel good. And what's wrong with feeling good? And yeah. let's, not, um, let's not, you know, dismiss feeling good as completely irrelevant to yeah. how we make decisions in our lives. Well, the message that I give my children, 20 and 18, the ones who can't drink, are almost drunk. And I've always said it, I said, there's a reason drugs and alcohol are here. It's not because they're so fucking awful that like, they just make, you know, they're the worst things ever. So that's why they're so widespread. Clearly, there's, there's, they're fun. Clearly, there's, mm -hmm. clearly there's, an, there's a positive side to them. Clearly, they're still around after all these years because you know, they, they, you know, there's an element of them that's got to be fun, it's got to be good, got to be positive. My message to them is always, to my kids has always been, but I would say, just caution, that I would stay away from both. And if drug, well, if alcohol is a drug, I'd say always stay away from both, unless you're in a, unless mentally you're in a, in a, in a, in a positive frame of mind and, in a, in a, and not in a sort of, a, you know, not, not a negative core, but if you're actually positive, if you feel that you're in a good place as, as, as an individual, mentally then they yeah. can be really fun if you're not i'd still well care of them because it exacerbates them it can't you know yeah but and also the other message to share with them is that their prefrontal cortices don't fully develop until they're 24 23 yeah. 24 25 and it's not a good idea to be chemically messing with a part of your brain that's not done growing yet 
because it rewires the bits that haven't properly wired yet. Unless, yeah. of course, unless, of course, you are from Southern Europe, in which case, <laughs> at about sort of 12 or 13 so, years old, with a little so glass of wine and water. I've got to say that that, that, yeah, that, that, that was my message. That has also was my message for about 10 years about the neurons that so, you know your, your brain not actually wiring itself properly until you're that age so what you're doing is if you're interfering before your brain's wired then you're setting wires off a different you know that's what schizophrenia with smoking weed you know i tried all that they simply weren't interested in this <laughs> they were because, because tom they obviously respect you too much they're like you know what it worked for dad so clearly it'll yeah. work for me um we, you know i got another question for you here when did you first start drinking not until quite late. Um, well, I mean, by American standards. So really, I don't think until I moved to San Francisco when I was 20 and started working in the restaurant industry, I started working in bars and restaurants. And that's it really, until then, I wasn't really an alcohol drinker. Do you have a crazy story around drinking your, of your own? Do you have your own wild, wild story? None that I can tell. <laughs> I think by definition, no, I, these are, no, <laughs> I can no, tell I, you the story I, about the proposal, the book proposal, that's a PG one. One thing's coming on a podcast to kind of like talk about your book. The other's being asked impertinent questions like, <laughs> God, tell us when you got really fucked up. I was, I was, hoping, I was hoping after the Negroni, he was going <laughs> to yeah, yeah. no, come out and be yeah. honest with us and tell yeah, us things truthful it's like didn't work he's clearly not drunk enough i like you would need two negronis yes. to get me to tell you that yeah, exactly he looks way more fresh than you and i anyway yes it came on by the way um these quick five questions haven't really worked too well one other question <laughs> i wrote down for our podcast and it's got very little to do with alcohol but it's got something to do with what you would what, what you what taoism and uh and 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 stuff you said was that my question really was does peacetime stifle artistic and intellectual creativity that doesn't tie in with your with your book but it was a question i really wanted to ask you does peacetime yeah does peacetime so now so completely going off the subject of what we've been talking about since whenever it was since the second world war we basically the longest period of peace in history right in european certainly in europe and european history but and you, there's, a, there's an element, you, I believe that, it's, that there was a, someone said in the past that peacetime stifles, arti you know, the uh, artistic and intellectual creativity, so we get lazy. Is that something that's... I don't, I don't know that that's true. I mean, we've had amazing advances since World War II in technology right. and art and literature. Um, yeah. The stifling thing seems to be... Um, thought police and um, enforcing of homogeneity. And um, I think that the internet's helped with that. I mean, the internet's, you know, two-edged thing, right? You get weird um, QAnon believers reinforcing their beliefs and pedophile Democrat. Is that because we have too much time? <laughs> but, is that because we have too much time to focus on this rubbish as opposed to worrying about, you know, um, you know, when the next bullet's coming from, or you know, whether we need to go and get signed up and go to, you know, because it's a subject that you've talked about before, I think. War? No, I haven't talked about. No, war, not war. No, no peacetime. It's it's a Chinese thing. So, so yeah. you, you've mentioned that the Chinese. You've mentioned that in China, um, peacetime was the, the longest periods of peace was stifling for the um, 
intellectual and uh, creative and artistic. Sorry, I'm being, Oh, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so the Warring States period, the period that I study is called the Warring States period. It's a period warring of state. warfare, a lot of chaos, social chaos. That allowed a lot of creativity to happen. So you had um, scholars who were moving from state to state trying to sell their ideas. And then China gets unified and this empire gets imposed and things become, in my view, super boring. So I don't really know much about what happens after China gets unified. <laughs> and, that, and that's really about top, that's about top down uh, imposition of doctrine really. Right. But I was just wondering, so before we talked about the alcohol thing, I was just wondering whether that whether that's got any relevance to where we are now today. We've got this, well, not unified, but we certainly got this non-warring situation, odd, the odd war here and there, but there's a sort of unified state of let's not go to war because it'll be the end. Um, is, this, is that, does, is it, I, the question I wanted to ask you, which is got nothing to do with the, the book that we were talking about, is, is do you think that could be kind of like, you know, chucked on, to, on the more, you know, to, to, is that relevant today that we've been in this, you know, we're all trying not to, you're know, all kind of unified in one strange way. We're not fighting, we're not literally fighting at each other. Do you think it's stifling? Do you think it's opening up that kind of, you know, the QAnon people, the kind of weirdness that we're doing? It's not actually, you know, it's, it's stifling actually artistic creativity or not. Or is it I, not I don't right? think so because we don't live under a unified empire in the same way that the Chinese started to do in 221 BCE. Um, we don't have um, someone at the top dictating what people are supposed to be thinking. Right. Um, and so I think that's, you know, we have all sorts of diverse creative pockets of people doing different things. Um, right. So that's necessarily, I think we need bullets. And in some ways, you know, war can be really um, flattening to creativity as well, because you need to unify around some particular idea. Everyone needs to get on the same page. Um, there's evidence that you've got um, reduced tolerance of internal dissent when you're at war against another culture. So you kind of unify around a certain idea of who you are. So war, war can also be stifling for creativity in that sense. Okay. Internal diversity is less tolerated. So. I'm very sorry for going off topic. That, but <laughs> right. It was something I'd read earlier that I wanted to ask you about. But, um, that was, um, <laughs> now I just got the last question. Final question, final question, super easy. Um, well, it could be. Shaken or stirred, Ted? Depends on how hurried I am. <laughs> I would prefer a Negroni. I actually prefer shaken. It takes more time to shake it. It's easier to just put it on the rock. I've hurried. I've, that yeah. hurry does the state of being because you look yeah, like so a the... hurried person. I think I've ever, we've ever spoken. <laughs> okay. So all the Taoism yeah. that I study. Yeah. But um, do not shake your Negroni though. You stir your Negroni. Why? Why? I, sh I did today. You only shake a drink that has a juice in it, you know, in order to blend. So when you have alcohol, you only, with mm -hmm. alcohol on alcohol, you just, you stir. That's the rule. The rule is stir alcohol, shake a juice. And the idea being that it blends better. And if you shake with alcohol, you dilute it by by breaking up the ice into the drink. Yeah, That's what you want to do. That's what you want to do though. But when you put Negroni on the rocks, it gets diluted gradually over time. Gradually over time, you don't have flakes. And you miss, you miss that sweet spot. Whereas if you shake it and are diluting it, and then you pour it into a martini glass, you have it at the dilution that you want it. 
I think you, you'd find people argue with you on that one. Um, all right. Okay. Amazing. Well, we've, we've taken up too much of your time. As I mentioned, we could probably talk to you all night, Ted. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it's so much fun. Such, such an interesting subject. The book Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization by Edward Slingerland. Edward, well done. I mean, amazing. Congratulations on the book. And I'm assuming we can get it where? Everywhere. Everywhere. Amazon yeah. and everywhere else we can get the book. Earlier. I bought it on Amazon. You can definitely get it on Amazon. I bought it. I can't wait. All right. Thanks so Thanks much, lot, guys. Ted. We appreciate it. it. All the best. Take care. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken Instead. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya.